Hope Church, and it's a joy this morning to be carrying on our series, looking um, at the book of 1 John, a series called That You May Know. And uh, we're carrying on in this series, looking at this letter written by John, who was one of Jesus's disciples, uh, to the early church, to a, a group of Christians. And these letters were written towards the end of John's life. And it seems, I think, John is trying to impart wisdom to this church, uh, much like a father to, to their children. And we'll see him actually refer to, 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 to them as children in the passage we're going to read today. But just to kind of give a context and an overview, really the aim of the letter seems to be for John to give these Christians real assurance and real certainty and kind of confidence in the faith that they hold. So at the end of the book, 1 John 5, 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, that you may know. He's trying to give them real assurance. And who better to encourage the next generation of Christians than, than John, someone who met with, walked with, touched um, and served with the living Jesus. He knew Jesus. And so he's passing this on to, to the next generation of Christians. And he does this through a number of tests, a number of tests of faith that he wants to sort of reassure them. If, if you want to know if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, here are some tests of that. And we've covered a couple of them already. We first looked at a test of obedience that Mark looked at. That is, if you were to kind of be a follower of Christ, then we have to sort of follow Jesus's example. We're to walk in the light. And then last week, Charles really helpfully unpacked for us this idea of a test of love, if we are to follow Christ, it means loving one another, and it means loving what God says to love and not what the world says to love. And so we come on to this third test that John gives, what we're calling the test of truth. A sign that if you're a follower of Christ, that you would hold on to what is true. That is, that is what John is um, explaining to them here. And before we get to the passage today, just a couple quick things I want to highlight, a couple quick features of John's writing um, that I think help us particularly in today's passage. The first is this, that John often deals in themes rather than arguments. Many of the New Testament writings, if you've read them, are by Paul, and you'll notice that Paul often likes to go through an argument very kind of methodically, step by step. He uses the term like, therefore this, therefore that. He links it all together. John, on the other hand, seems much more concerned with themes in his writing. And it, so everything kind of interweaves with each other. He has thoughts and ideas that all interweave together. And what that just means when we're reading John, um, and particularly in the case today, is it's often helpful for us to read the passage as a whole and pick out the themes from that, rather than trying to break down every single individual verse. And the second thing I just want to point out about John's writing is it uses very evocative language, and he likes to contrast things, you know, light and dark, love and hate, righteousness and sin. And this week, uh, the contrast is truth and lies. And what really struck me, I think, about Charles's talk last week, where he really helpfully unpacked for us, is that this is clearly a deliberate choice on John's part, because, yes, it grabs our attention, but he's just making it clear to us that there is no middle ground in this. That by being a Christian, you choose to either be on the side of light, of love, of righteousness, of truth, or the alternative is you're on the other side. He doesn't allow us to live in the shades of gray that the world around us probably wants us to. He 
purposefully, John, I think, uses language that forces us to, to make a choice. To make a choice to, to choose one or the other. And today we're going to unpack that in this idea of the sort of truth versus lies in this test of truth. So I'm just going to read the passage we're looking at today. And it's from 1 John chapter 2, starting at verse 18 to the end in verse 29. So John says this, Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you have been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you, not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it, and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. So there's a lot to unpack there. As I said, John uses very evocative language, doesn't he? A lot of things jump out to us. And I want to just briefly, before we kind of really dig into this, just kind of show you a little peek behind the curtain of sort of how we go about looking at this. A top tip if you're studying the Bible is to kind of pick out repeating words and phrases. See what, what the author has decided to say multiple times. Because if he said it multiple times, it probably means that they're trying to draw your attention to it. And I think there are three words that jump out that, to me that repeat multiple times. Three themes that we can see here that John is trying to draw our attention to. And that is this idea of antichrists. And we'll get on to that, plural, antichrists, anointing, and then to abide or abiding. And let me just quickly show you, again, I just want to just make it as plain as possible how we've got to that point. So you'll see on the screen here, and I'm just going to read it now, but just quickly, verse 18, you see straight away the Antichrist is mentioned. Many Antichrists are mentioned, and then they, that is the Antichrists, uh, went out from us. As we go on, John jumps in with this idea of anointing in verse 20. You've been anointed by the Holy One. So again, he's interweaving ideas here, but then jumps back to the Antichrist, this is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son in verse 22. And then in verse 24, he starts talking about this idea of abide, abide in you. You know, what you've heard from the beginning, let it abide in you and you in the Father and the, and the Son. But then verse 26, he said, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. So he's still bringing in this idea of the Antichrist. And then towards the end, again, but the anointing, and there's that word anointing you receive from him, abides in you as his anointing teaches you about everything, as, as it, that is the anointing, has taught you, abide in him 
and verse 28, now little children abide in him. And I just wanted to highlight that to you just because I want to sort of demystify what it looks like to look at the Bible and study the Bible. Like I'm not up here as a, some sort of special person who has special insight. I'm just looking at the Bible and I'm just pointing out where things are repeating and where ideas are repeating. So I just thought it'd be helpful just to quickly just show you that, you know, like in maths, when you show your working out, I want to quickly just show you how we've got to that point. And so, like I said, there are three ideas I want to unpack today. And helpfully, they'll all begin with the letter A as well. So I didn't have to come up with some clever uh, alliteration. It's all there. And that's the Antichrists. And specifically, I think this idea of opposition to the truth. I want to look at anointing and this idea of growing in the truth. And then finally, this idea of abide or abiding, which is to remain in the truth. So let's start to unpack that together. And the first one, and perhaps the most uh, startling one, is this idea of antichrists, opposition to the truth. So the first theme I think that John is picking up on is this idea of an opposition to the truth. Do you, meet, you notice in verse 18, he immediately creates a sense of urgency. It is the last hour and then jumps to this idea of the antichrist. And some of you here, I think, have different thoughts when you hear this. Some of you are going to hear that and go, oh, great, finally, we can dig into this. I've been watching these YouTube videos for years. Who is it? Is it, is it Trump? Is it Obama? Is it the Pope? Is it Beyonce? Who is the Antichrist? You know? um, and some of you here are going to have the opposite and be like, oh, can we just move swiftly on from this? Isn't this what people on street corners shout about? Aren't there these terribly cringy, cheesy Christian movies about the end times that talk about the Antichrist? Can we just move on from this, please? And I think reading this passage together, I think, unfortunately, both sets of groups are going to be a bit disappointed this morning. Because John does make it clear that there is a figure in the future who will come that he calls the Antichrist. You can't avoid it. He, he doesn't make it any, any more plain. And interestingly, the only place in the Bible you hear the term Antichrist is in John's writings, in 1 John three times in this passage and one time later, and then one more time in to John. But there are other references in the Bible that, that link to this idea. Uh, two Thessalonians, Paul talks about this character called the man of lawlessness or the man of sin. In the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, there's this prophecy in Daniel 11 that doesn't seem to link to any character in history we see about this, uh, this kind of king who exalts himself. And of course, you look at the book of Revelation, there's all sorts of things that kind of link to this idea of Antichrist. So First of all, John is taking this seriously. He does believe that there is this character, albeit in the future. So we can't just move swiftly on from this idea. But equally, John's point here is actually to draw these Christians' eyes away from this future Antichrist and tell them, there, no, there are Antichrists now here that we have to worry about. There's something going on here. He's, he's drawing their eyes to a, to a present problem, a present reality, rather than saying, think about this future one. Yes, he's referring to this idea, but he's using it to kind of almost highlight the stark kind of problem and the kind of the, the intenseness of what's going on right now. So we're not going to be touching on this, going too deep in this idea of, of Antichrist and what, what that means for the future. But equally, we can't move on from that. We've got to, we've got to grapple with this idea that it is, it is something John takes very seriously. So let's just unpack this idea of this plural, this, there are Antichrists. And again, this language is very evocative, isn't it? I think maybe Hollywood or something has got in our brain. Where we hear that and we go, oh, gosh. But this is, this is the language that John's using, so we're going we're gonna to deal with it. So how do we know about these antichrists? Well, what we know about them, just 
from the passage in verse 18 it says there's many of them in verse 19 it says that they were with the church originally um, but they never truly belonged it says in verse 22 John calls them liars and he says that, that he's warning them about those who are going to deceive you verse 26 but I think the key problem here the key thing that identifies who these antichrists are is verse 22 and verse 23 that it basically that they are denying that Jesus is Christ so they're denying that he's the, the chosen Messiah and they're denying that he is God in verse 23. That's the key problem. That's the key identifier. So when John references them later in the letter, he also refers to them as false prophets. So you can probably use those terms interchangeably and even talks about in 1 John 4, this idea of the spirit of the Antichrist. So I think the interesting thing is I think he's drawing, again, a contrast, a parallel between Christians who are like mini versions of Christ, where to imitate and look like Christ, and these antichrists who are kind of almost pictures or imitators of this future antichrist. And you can hear all this and you can think, okay, right, great, we've unpacked that, but what does that actually mean in 2022? How do we even handle this? This idea does that just mean everyone in the world who's not a Christian is, a, is an antichrist? You know, they technically are, I guess, are. And I suppose, in one sense, sure. Like, I guess everyone who's not a Christian is literally, you know, to some degree, antichrist. But I think the helpful way to understand this for us today and to try and think about it is again going back to the passage. What is it that John specifically says about these people who are who are were called these antichrists? Verse nineteen. It says that they were once one of them it says in verse 19 they went out from us so the key is is that these people were once part of the church and then they chose to leave and it's clearly they're then spreading different a different gospel a different message and i think you know we see in verse 21 he says he's writing to these christians who know the truth so they're not going to be fooled by people who come to them saying something kind of you know the complete opposite of what they've been taught but maybe they would be deceived or they would be fooled by people who come, come with a, just a slightly different version of things. I think his concern is that maybe they'd listen to people who they once knew, who want, they, they, maybe they once trusted, people who come with, with kind of the truth to a certain point and then veer off. And I think that's the danger for, for us today. The opposition that comes directly at us, you know, when, when something comes directly, we're often kind of ready for it. But when, when we have opposition that kind of comes alongside us and we kind of follows us to the point and then veers off, we have a tendency to go, well, if they're going that way, I guess I should be going that way as well. Because we've walked 80% of the way and suddenly they're going that way. Well, like, you know, we just feel that pressure to go, well, I suppose, I suppose, you know, I, I guess they know what they're talking about. They know what they're doing. It catches us off, off guard. What are some examples of this, I think, in, in, the, modern, in the modern world? Well, I think, I think there are, first of all other religions that talk about god i mean ultimately a lot of these religions will agree with us to a certain point they'll believe there's a god and they'll believe in certain kind of moral standards but then they'll very often say but jesus was just a prophet or he was just a wise man just a good man and we've got to be careful i think about that about being kind of deceived and going along that route. If you go a little bit deeper, then perhaps you've, you've experienced Mormons who seem to be the most lovely people in the world and constantly smiling and they'll approach you. And they believe in God and they sort of believe in Jesus. I've dug into it a little bit and there's some things there. But I mean, I think a clear thing is that they believe that there's this Book of Mormon, this additional revelation that has equal weight to the Bible. And there's all kinds of things in there that contradict what we would 
believe. And again, you can go along a certain way and then they'll veer off. And even another layer deeper, Jehovah's Witnesses, that's a, that's a tricky one. You know, because they do believe in God and they do believe in, in Jesus, but they don't actually, if you look into their beliefs, believe in the Trinity at all. They, believe that, they don't believe that, that Jesus is God. They believe he's God's literal son. Or the, they, they also believe he's the Archangel Michael, is the same character. And they don't believe the Holy Spirit is a separate entity, but they just believe it's just God working in the world. So they don't actually believe in the Trinity that we hold as kind of a key uh, doctrine for us. So again, it's just this, this thing. We've got to be careful about, I think John is warning us, about people who appear on the surface to follow us a lot of the way. But this is, another, this is a form of opposition that we just need to be really, really conscious and careful of. I don't know if you've heard this story before um, about this story of the blind men and the elephant. It's a story that is, uh, I remember hearing at school and it's, in, it's like a, a philosophy idea. It's this idea that um, there's this elephant and then these blind men who are touching different parts of the elephant. And one of them grabs the tail and says, oh, this creature is kind of a long and thin and furry. Um, and so, and so, and so, it must be. Um, I don't know what a long, thin, furry creature would be, but it's, it must be this creature. You know, another one grabs the trunk. And it's like, oh no, it's more kind of it's it's sort of writhing. It's this thing. Oh, it must be a snake. And another one grabs the, the the sort of legs. And it's like, oh, it must be this. And they're all touching different parts of the elephant and saying, oh, it must be this. It must be this. And the philosophic the philosophical point is supposed to be um, that that oh, you know, everyone can see truth from a different angle, and you're all touching the same thing. You see, I think the flaw in that argument is that the person telling that story still has to know it's an elephant, to know that they're all touching the same thing. Someone is outside of that and saying, this is the reality. And the thing is, is that as, as Christians, we believe that, we, that the truth we have in the person of Jesus and in the Bible is the reality, that it's not a case. That we believe we can see the whole elephant we don't believe we've got some some hidden stuff here where oh maybe maybe these people have got it right they're just seeing it at a different angle they're just touching a different part no we have the truth in the person of jesus and in the bible i mean i mean i don't know if john 14 6 to 7 could be more clear when jesus says i am the way the truth and the life no one comes to the father except through me if you really know me, you will know my father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. The only way is Jesus. And I think, you know, maybe you might be thinking, well, where do we draw the line then? Where do we draw the line then? Because surely there are Christians and people in this room that we have disagreements about all sorts of things on. And so, again, going back to what, what does John say the key thing is? The key thing, the key point of no, of no negotiation is the gospel. The key point of no negotiation is what, what I said in verse 22 and 23, that Jesus is Christ and he is God. That is the gospel. We can have healthy disagreements among ourselves about all kinds of theological issues and challenges. But the key thing, the key point where we should know, all right, this is going down the wrong path. You know, when we're walking with someone and they say something, the discernment I think that we need to, to show is, are they saying something that literally contravenes the gospel, that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is God, that he did save us on the cross? That's the lie that John is warning these Christians to be careful about. Some truths are non-negotiable, John is saying. There are some things that are non-negotiable 
negotiable. Anyone that tries to teach that Jesus is not God is, in, is literally anti-Christ. Literally anti-Christ. And this is why we've got to be careful, because sometimes these things may come from people that we trust, people who maybe even call themselves Christians. And I don't, I'm not trying to sort of start anything. I don't want people to start kind of, you know, labeling this and that, this and that. But again, I think just to, just to, to be clear, we need to be discerning about what, what is opposition to the truth. And that, I think, is the line. The gospel of Jesus. Again, John doesn't leave room for middle ground here, does he? He doesn't, really, doesn't leave room for discussion. You are for the truth or you're in opposition to the truth. You are for Christ or you are anti-Christ. So let's move on now to the next theme I think that is found in this passage, and that is this idea of anointing. And this is a, this is a, this idea of how you would grow, I think, in the truth. So John, as I said, is a, he likes to contrast. He's obviously contrasting these antichrists, these mini versions of this sort of future antichrist with the Christians, the sort of mini Christs. And he says that those, those mini Christs, these Christians, are anointed in verse 20. And that is, if it wasn't clear, that is the Holy Spirit. John talks about this um, in, um, so Jesus talks about this in John 14, um, when he calls, he calls it the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. And we know it's, this is the Holy Spirit. And you know it's sometimes, you know, in the Bible, we've got to be careful because the term spirit gets thrown around. And we don't, you know, we want to make sure that it's, you know, we're definitely, this is the Holy Spirit. It definitely is because this, the, the Holy Spirit in this passage is doing exactly what Jesus said the Holy Spirit was here to do. Let me just quickly show you. In John 14, 26, Jesus says, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Let's look again at our passage. What does John say? But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. So we know this is the Holy Spirit because it's teaching them. It's teaching them and helping them grow in their knowledge and understanding of the truth. And I think we often think of the Holy Spirit in its obviously spectacular ways right we think of it as this thing that kind of it deals in miracles and deals in incredible things which it, it certainly does i may need oh there we go okay we'll see we'll see if this carries on um yeah i think we think of the holy spirit often as dealing in sort of the miraculous but I think what we need to be cautious of is acting like that is the only thing the Holy Spirit does. And in fact, I would argue that the primary purpose of the Holy Spirit that Jesus lays out here is to teach us, is to grow us. It's not an either or thing. It's not like the Bible saying it's one or the other. You know, the Bible talks about the gifts of the Spirit and all these other things. So, of course, we take that to be true. And it talks about the Holy Spirit teaching us. And so we take that to be true. But the primary purpose Jesus lays out is that the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. So we may see miracles or we may not see miracles. We may speak in tongues or we may not speak in tongues. We may have supernatural things happen, but we don't always see those things happen. The sign of the Holy Spirit is not that you see these things happen. The sign of the Holy Spirit within you is that you are growing in your, in your knowledge of God, growing in your understanding of God, growing in your relationship 
with God. That's what John says here, sets apart these Christians from the opposing antichrists. It's about this growing in our knowledge and understanding of God. So how do we grow in the truth? That's a, a big question. Because obviously, in some ways, this truth is static, isn't it? Like, surely, once you know something, you know something. How do you grow in that? But I do think we can always learn more. The way I would describe it is almost like when you're in primary school, science class, you know, you learn, let's say, about gravity or, or something like that. And then at secondary school, you learn another layer, don't you? You learn about the forces at play that are going on there. And then at undergrad level, you might get even, even deeper into different things or, or specialize in a certain area. Then you do a PhD and maybe you end up being a scientist at NASA. And every time you're learning more and more about this simple concept you already knew. But each time you, you, can, you can learn more and more and get a greater appreciation for that. And that's what I think it means to grow in our knowledge and understanding of the truth. We can grow in our appreciation for it. We can grow in our understanding of it, even if that truth is, is at its core very simple and clear. And where do we go for that? Well, it's the obvious answer. It's the Sunday school answer. Um, it's, not, it's either Jesus, prayer, or the Bible. In this case, it's the Bible. This is where we go to grow in our understanding of God. And again, the Holy Spirit is here to help us understand it. I've, I showed a little bit for you earlier kind of how I um, sort of like approached this passage and sort of just picking out certain things. But I think a key thing as well, just to remember, is that when you come to the Bible, it's really helpful to always be praying that the Holy Spirit will help you to understand it, because that's what it's there for. The, the Bible is called the sword of the Spirit, right? It's a weapon we can wield, but with the Spirit's help. You know, how, how often do you, when you come to the Bible, ask and pray for the Holy Spirit to help you read it? I, I would suggest try it. See if anything changes. And if you're not sure where to start, just to give you sort of like a starting point, a top tip, I guess, is if you're kind of wanting to get back into Bible reading or, or what have you, I would just suggest start, start narrow and deep rather than wide and shallow. And by that, I mean, don't feel like you have to cover as much as possible. Sometimes when we read the Bible, we treat it almost like a revision session. We're trying to cover as much ground as possible. Read this, read this, move on, read this, move on. But actually, I think if you want to grow in your understanding of the truth, then try just picking a passage that you would read multiple times and let the Holy Spirit kind of, kind of sink that in you, you know, deepen that in you. Maybe you want to pick like a short psalm and then you want to read it and then write down some notes and then read it again and then pray about it and then read it again and talk to someone, then read it again. Just let it kind of really kind of go deep. Or maybe you want to just read through a gospel. You know, you want to look at kind of who was this Jesus character? What, what, what did he really say? The world says all these things. What did he really say? Just read like a chapter a day just to kind of remind yourself of that. Or maybe, you know, some people I know read the armor of God every morning for themselves before they go into work, before they go into their day. They read, the, they put on the armor of God by just reading it every single day. And again, I'll, I'll be, I'm sure you'd be surprised at how it would apply to your day and, and help you. So if you want to grow, again, you know, as you, as you grow in your own faith, you can obviously go wide as well and cover a lot. But just if, you, if you're thinking, where do I start? What should I, where should I go right now if I want to sort of jump back into this, this kind of Bible reading, growing in it? I think, yes, I think small and deep. I think narrow and deep. Just get into helpful patterns that you can then grow in your knowledge of the truth. And then the third point. The third theme I think John is uh, touching on here, well, he doesn't touch on it, he, he says it over and over again, is this term abide. 
and abiding, um, which, which, you know, if you know, if you don't know what the word abide means, helpfully, if you look at other translations, they might change that word to, to remain or, or to continue or, or to stand. Basically, it means kind of this consistency in, in your faith, this, this, this consistency in what you're doing. It's a call from John, really, for them to rely on Jesus. You know, beware the opposition to the truth, you know, the antichrists. Use the Holy Spirit to grow in your knowledge of the truth, the anointing. And then he's saying, stick at it. Stick at it. Remain in the truth. Keep, keep doing it. Keep sticking at it. Stand. Stay. Continue. Remain. And the reason I think you have to say this is because, again, if we look back, and again, the themes interweave, if we look back again, John said that these people, these antichrists that he's warning them about, clearly did not abide. They clearly did not remain. They, they, remember, they left the church and did their own thing. They obviously heard the good news initially. Maybe they stayed for a while. Maybe they even grew a bit. But then they lost their way. They didn't have firm foundations in the truth. Maybe they let other ideas uh, kind of take hold of them. You know, Charles touched on this. There's plenty more in the book as well. But just there's this kind of contrast throughout John about this idea of God's way and the world's way. Perhaps these people just love the world's way more than Christ, more than God's way. I think we're also, when we hear this term abide, we're meant to think back on Jesus's words in John 15. When I was talking to Mark about, about my talk, I mean, it was really helpful this week in our community group. We actually cover this exact passage in John 15, which is this, this passage that Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me and I in you. That is, that is what Jesus says, you know, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing, he says in verse 5. This term, of, this, when the, the, the Christians reading this hear that term abide, abide, abide over and over again, I'm sure their minds would have been drawn to Jesus's words, that we need this, we need the vine, we need to be attached to Christ, we need to be abiding in Christ for us to flourish, for us to bear fruit. That he gives us all that we need. And if we don't remain in Christ, if we don't remain attached to the vine, well, you can imagine the imagery that, that he has used. You know, if a vine becomes disconnected, dis it becomes detached, then it's away from the life-giving tree. John clearly wants to kind of hammer in this message that, you know, it's important. The consequences are kind of quite severe if you're not attached to, if you're not connected to Christ. If you do not abide, then, you know, in Jesus's words, I guess you would not bear fruit, that you would wither um, and your faith would die. Or in John's words, if you don't abide, you're going to become like these false prophets, these antichrists and walk away from the faith. So how do we how do we remain in the truth? It's not easy, is it? But how, how do we stand strong and remain faithful in the truth? How do we remain consistent and keep going and going every day, every day, every day? Because we probably like the sound of the growth, right? We like the sound of growing in, our, in, the, in the truth. But what happens when we hit a wall, when we struggle and face opposition? You know, it's, it's hard when life gets busy, isn't it, to abide. It's hard to abide when we're tired, which I can very much relate to. <laughs> It's hard to abide when we have challenges in our life that just take up so much of our headspace or where financial worries or relationship breakdown or all kinds of things. It's hard to keep going 
It's hard to abide. Even when life is good, sometimes that can be itself be some, a bit of a distraction. We, want, we sort of want to fill our time with other things. We have to motivate ourselves to keep going. And that's why I think it's important we remember the circular nature of this. And John uses that term abide lots of times. And he, he says, abide in Christ. And he says, and he will abide in us. So it's, it's a two-way street. We abide in Christ. We remain in him. But he remains in us. Christ is in us. And I know we know that in our head, but it's so key that we know that deeper than that. It's so key that we really understand that. Because when we face opposition, we are attached to the life-giving vine. We have Christ in us and with us. And in that same passage in John 15 that talked about the vine, it, uh, Jesus goes on to, to talk about loving one another. And that's just, again, this idea of we have Christian brothers and sisters alongside us. When we face these tough times, we can stand strong in the truth. And remember, we're not standing alone because Christ is in us. Our Christian family is with us. And when the world is against us, Christ is for us and Christ is in us. And that's why this passage, I think, in verse 28, John sort of, sort of starts to conclude this idea by just saying now little children abide in him that's Jesus so that when he appears we may have confidence he wants to give them confidence he wants to say if you abide in Jesus that should give you real confidence it's a real assurance for the future no matter what's going on now you have an assurance and it's not an assurance by made by some far-off God who said something a long time ago and then is gone this is a God who's dwelling in you now almost like the receipt of this assurance is right in front of you because it's dwelling in you now. You've not got to dig through lots of papers to find how, how can I be sure? Where is it? Oh, yeah, am I sure? No, it's living in you now. That's the proof. That's the assurance you have. Jesus is living in you. If you abide in him, he abides in you. You know, and I think the word abide should tell us this is not something that, that should like, kind of come and go. It's not something we have to kind of like actively seek, but something that is just a consistent thing. If we abide in Jesus, if we just are followers of Jesus, then he is here. He's already here. There's no special trick to unlock him. There's no special like magic, magic words or different kinds of prayers or different sort of actions we have to take. He's already here. And I think for me, at least, I think the key to kind of like just remaining in the truth is just remembering that and bringing Christ as much as possible into our everyday life because he's already here he's within you but bring him into your everyday don't be afraid to bring Christ into situations that you're facing when you are tired just pray just to say a quick, a quick prayer for rest when you're struggling with work or finances or chaotic situations just pray quickly for peace when you're walking down the street and something wonderful strikes you, just thank God in that moment. Or when you hear someone, uh, something, something difficult in someone else's life, immediately pray for them. Don't wait. Don't put it off because you, you know you won't come back to that. Just do it now. But I think as much as we can bring Christ into our every day, in the, in the immediate moment, it reminds us constantly we remain in Christ. He is in us. And we keep bringing him in. And it just reminds us over and over. So I guess my encouragement is just to not to pigeonhole Christ to like particular times of day. I know my last point was almost get into good patterns. And this one is saying, like, you know, sort of do spontaneous stuff. But I think we need both. We need both. You can't, if you get into a pattern, something will come along, no doubt that will smash that. I'm telling you, like, <laughs> from my own experience, you get into these good patterns, and then suddenly work gets 
incredibly busy and that that normal sort of kind of bible study time that you have is just gone for that day and then you've got to kind of pick that up later or maybe that quiet time you normally have on the bus suddenly there's always noisy people around or something's distracting you or maybe that time when you have like a specific time to pray you know perhaps that person you pray with can't make it that week or something else comes up or the kids are in the other room messing around to deal with that the point is you can make all these plans and they're good to make plans but something will come along and smash that so it's about keeping christ in your every day just just bringing him into the little moments of your day I think Regina's testimony was amazing because it was all about just bringing Christ into a, a, an almost an everyday situation, right? It's about it's about something kind of we, we, we again we sort of make everything so about the kind of supernatural, about the super spiritual. Christ is with us always. He's with us in those small moments just as much as those big moments. So that's how I think we remain in the truth. Just bring Christ into the everyday. We can still abide. We can still remain by just using those small opportunities we have to bring Christ, uh, to remind ourselves that Christ is here and with us. So just to conclude and just sort of a final challenge for us. I said there were three, I think, themes, three main things John was sort of drawing our attention to. Antichrists was the first one, this idea of opposition to the truth. And I think we just need to just be careful, really, because opposition we know will come you know the bible promises us that multiple times but john really is talking about the kind of slightly more subtle ways it can come and i think the key here is that the gospel is non-negotiable there is no middle ground when it comes to the gospel we can talk about secondary and tertiary issues that's fine we can discuss those things try and hash it out when it comes to the gospel that is a non-negotiable and then the anointing this kind of idea of growing in the truth john clearly wants these Christians to understand that they have the Holy Spirit to help them grow. And we have the Holy Spirit to help us grow in our faith and particularly to understand scripture. You know, the Bible is our sword of the spirit. So ask the spirit to help you in using that. And finally, this idea of abiding, remaining in the truth. John clearly wants these Christians to stand firm because we are, as Christians, connected to Christ, connected to the vine. And that knowing that Christ is in us, you know, we abide in him, but he abides in us. He is always available every day, no matter what our circumstance and situation. That should be such an encouragement to us to remain in the truth. Keep going, keep going. And then you, now you may notice one more thing, which is uh, if you've been very eagle eyed that I read verse 29 at the start, but we've not mentioned it. And as I said, John deals more in thoughts, ideas, themes. And this verse is a tricky one because it sort of doesn't quite seem to initially connect with the, our verses. doesn't really connect with the next set of verses either. But as I was looking at it and reflecting on it, actually, I think it does connect actually quite, quite well with this idea we're looking at today of the truth. Let's read it again just quickly. John says, if you know, okay, there's the, there's the truth aspect. If you know that he is righteous, and that's Jesus, you may be sure in the truth you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him so john has just talked about how there are people out there who kind of oppose you and may try and deceive you i think here he gives this church kind of one more test they can throw out one more thing they can sort of do to sort of test the genuineness of someone's faith because you see i think it's possible for someone to say with their lips everything i've just said today you know 
They could agree with me on every theological level. But John is saying if their actions don't live up to that, then is the truth really in them? He says, if you know that he is righteous, if you know Jesus is righteous, then you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. You know, the, the truth doesn't just stay up here in our head. It reveals itself in how we live. Just it has to. It seems obvious, but knowing the Bible isn't enough. There are plenty of people out there who know the Bible way better than any of us in this room. But we need to live it out. You know, the final challenge for us today is to, yes, be careful of what truth we are kind of allowing to, to fill our head with. Yes, to grow in our understanding uh, of the truth. Yes, to keep going, to stand firm. But it's also to just move all of that from our heads to our hands. To move all that we've heard from our heads to our hands. We want to be people of action. People who are, who are willing to make the truth a living, breathing thing in our life. You know, if, 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 as we read, the aim of these antichrists is to deceive people away from Christ, then we should be looking to point people towards Christ. That's an action we can do. If the world pushes sort of lies on, on, upon us, we can respond by speaking the truth to that. If opposition attacks us with hate, we can respond with love. See, the truth isn't just a static thing. It's alive. It's real. It lives in us, as we've just looked at, and we need to live it out in our lives. 